It's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that makes a great speech, but you know one when you hear it. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, we shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! If we can find that grace, anything is possible. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. These days, there's often a talented team of writers behind the most impactful and memorable speeches. These people spend hours, days even, mulling over the words and carefully crafting each sentence. I went into work because I knew that President Obama's meetings would be pulled down, and that meant I could grab him for the entire day. And so we passed five drafts of a speech back and forth, making each other better, and we knew it. It was just it was that rare moment where you know you're playing a great game and you just know it. Speechwriters like. Cody Keenan, who worked very closely alongside Barack Obama during his presidential campaigns and his eight years in the White House. I described writing for him as a wonderful struggle because the struggle part was we would kill ourselves to get him a first draft, not only that he could work with, because that was part of our collaboration, but we always wanted to impress him. You didn't want to let him down because he had a lot on his plate. He's the man who collaborated with the former president on some of his most memorable and poignant public addresses. We're the immigrants who stowed away on ships to reach these shores. The huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Holocaust survivors, Soviet defectors, the lost boys of Sudan. Speechwriting is a very skilled craft. You need to get inside the speaker's head and learn how to write their voice and ultimately produce powerful and meaningful messages, messages which may well go down in history. Remember that whatever hardships the winter may bring. Springtime's always just around the corner. And if they keep on arguing with you, just respond with a simple creed. It's fatal link. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. In his new book, Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America, Cody brings readers inside the West Wing during his time as chief speechwriter and gives an intimate portrayal of life inside the White House during some of the most critical moments in American history. And he talks about the pressure of knowing just what to say as the world watches and waits. I'm Sarah Pollock, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, 10 days in the life of Obama's chief speechwriter. Cody, let's start right back at the beginning. You've written about how in the space of 10 years, you went from being a mailroom intern in Congress to then, a decade later, chief speechwriter at the White House. I mean, <laughs> that's a hell of a career progression. How did that happen and, and how did you end up working with Barack Obama? Well, the, the most important thing to know about it is it's not something you do on your own. Um, it's, mm. it's the power of, what, first of all, what a winning campaign can do, but also having an incredible team around you. It's a real mix of hard work and incredible luck. Um, I, I started as a mailroom intern in Ted Kennedy's office, the youngest Kennedy brother in the Senate. Uh, just opening mail and routing mail. And that's where I, that was my best political education. 
because you learn that politics, you know, isn't like the West Wing, which it was on when I came of age. It's it's about solving problems and helping people and trying to make the country just a little bit better. And in Barack Obama, I saw someone who believed in the same things. I was lucky enough to be on the floor of the 2004 Democratic Convention when he gave the speech that took him from anonymous state senator to global megastar. Tonight is a particular honor for me because, let's face it, my presence on this stage is pretty unlikely. My father was a foreign student, born and raised in a small village in Kenya. And so I joined that campaign and, and quickly learned the speechwriting ropes. It takes a while to learn somebody's voice when you're writing for them, but I also mm -hmm. had a great mentor in uh, John Favreau, who's now one of my best friends. He was Senator Obama's chief speechwriter before he, they even ran. And then you've got this, again, great team around you. you know, our speechwriting team grew and we all worked on each other's speeches and helped each other along. And then the president, of course, is a great mentor and educator uh, in addition to running the free world. You wanted to see me, Mr. President? Toby, come on in. You read my draft, sir? I made a few changes, but have a seat. So you mentioned, like so many of us, uh, before working with Obama, your understanding and perception of the White House was through watching the West Wing. But once you got in there, what was a usual, and I mean, I say usual in inverted commas, day's work like in the White House? Or does such a thing exist? And what about that feeling of walking into the West Wing each morning for work? Does it ever stop feeling surreal? No. And you learn quickly. It's, it has, it's nothing like a television show. And, you know, <laughs> that's one of the favorite criticisms of people who are like, oh, everyone's walking around and they're thinking it's just like the West Wing. No, we're the first people who know it's not. It, it never got, I always told myself that if it ever got old, that's when it was time for me to leave. And it never did. I ended up staying all 2,922 days. The first day you walk up, you're, for me, it was the day after the inauguration, January 21st, 2009, to the White House gates you're sure there's been some mistake. You hand over your ID and be let in and you're just positive they're gonna say, no, you're not on the list. But then the gate opens and you're like, oh my God, what do I do now? And you walk in and you go through the same kind of check-ins you probably would in every day in a new job. Um, but in addition, we had you know, security briefings, ethics, ethics briefings, and then you're thrown into it. And you know, on our first day, the, the global economy was falling apart. 800,000 Americans are losing their jobs every month. So you don't really have time to find the bathroom or, you know, where do you get some lunch? You are in there writing speeches about how to save a cratering economy. What about, you mentioned when you first walked up, you, you were expecting them to tell you, oh, you're in the wrong place. But what about that imposter syndrome that we all suffer at certain points in our life, whether it's starting a new job, getting a promotion, how did you deal with it when you became chief speechwriter for Obama during his second term? It never went away. Um, and, and that part of that is it was writing for him. He was an extraordinary writer in his own right. He published um, Dreams for My Father when he was in his 30s. As he's, I just saw him on Saturday at a staff wedding, and uh, he reminded me for the umpteenth time that he wrote the 2004 speech himself, as if I'd forgotten. Uh, so it, it, it was always, it, I described writing for him as a wonderful struggle because the struggle part was we would kill ourselves to get him a first draft, not only that he could work with, because that was part of our collaboration, but we always wanted to impress him. You didn't want to let him down because he had a lot on his plate. But the wonderful part is if we did, maybe not let him down, but just gave him something pedestrian, something fine, he could take it to a higher place. Mm -hmm. um, and he would. He'd work on it until two in the morning. He was a night owl and, and just 
line edit everything and we'd go back in the next morning and pick it up at seven and see what he'd done to it overnight. And that was always pretty exciting to see what he had done to his speech. And you talk a lot about that process and the speeches in your new book, which is called Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. It is exactly that. It's a detailed focus in on 10 of the days that you spent working with Obama, specifically in June 2015. Why did you decide to focus in on that particular period for this book? First of all, it's just an extraordinary story. The amount of unbelievable events that happened in just 10 days is staggering. Any one of those events would have been a big event for a year and they were shoehorned in together. But they also kind of spoke to a larger question of what America is all about. Who are we? What do we care about? Who decides what it means to be an American? And do we fight for the things we profess to believe in? Just to give a quick sketch of the 10 days, it, they began with a, an act of racial terror in a church in Charleston, South Carolina. A white supremacist walked into a prayer group and murdered nine black worshipers. It was a white male in his 20s wearing Timberland boots, jeans, and a t-shirt. They say he came in, allegedly, came into that church and started firing, and he is on the loose. And that sort of upended everything. You know, you quickly have to write a statement for the president because you know he has to say something about it. But we were also working on all sorts of different speeches to prepare for Supreme Court cases that were coming down the next week. You don't know what day they're going to come down. You don't know what the decision's going to be. And the, the big ones we had our eyes on were uh, the Affordable Care Act, which was President Obama's health care plan, and marriage equality, whether, you know, we were, whether or not we were going to follow our, the Irish uh, into, into declaring that you know, anyone could get married. And you don't know how those are going to go. So we had to prepare speeches just in case the Supreme Court struck down Obamacare and millions of people lost their health insurance. And whether the Supreme Court might find there wasn't a right to marriage equality. And you know, not just millions of Americans, but our friends and colleagues who we worked with and saw every day, whether or not they would be deemed second-class citizens or whether they could get married like the rest of us. So we're preparing all these speeches and, and then this um, this terrorist attack takes place. And, and over the next few days, there's kind of this public debate about the Confederate flag for the umpteenth time and, and what it means and what well, we know what it means, but Republican governors begin taking it down over public spaces across the South, which was something we'd never imagined. You know, President Obama would joke that we came into office with a long to-do list that just kept getting longer, and that was never on it. So through it all, we're also deciding whether or not the president's going to give a eulogy. Uh, that was a question, um, because he had given so many after mass shootings. We've endured too many of these tragedies in the past few years. And each time I learn the news, I react not as a president, but as anybody else would. So all these things are happening at once. These questions about you know, whether or not um, working Americans have a right to health insurance, which, and these aren't really questions that the Irish have to grapple with or that much of Europe has to grapple with. Whether or not uh, LGBTQ Americans can get married, you know, whether or not a black person still has to walk past the Confederate flag on their way to work, or whether they're safe in their church. And all these questions came to a head at once, and I were writing speeches about all of them. Uh, and then on the 10th day of the week, well, on the ninth day of, the week, uh, of those 10 days, the Supreme Court upholds Obamacare. And it brings relief tonight for the 31 million who depend on it for their insurance. For the young people. On the 10th day, the Supreme Court finds a right to marriage equality. Absolutely. Two major victories for the president at the Supreme Court, and both of them coming courtesy of justices appointed by Republican presidents. In this and case, even as all these justices. joyous, jubilant scenes are happening in the West Wing and on television at the Supreme Court, we're still finishing up a eulogy for an act of racial terror. 
To the families of the fallen, the nation shares in your grief. Our pain cuts that much deeper because it happened in a church. And we go to Charleston, the president sings Amazing Grace, and we come home and the White House is lit up like a rainbow. I mean, it was, it was a lot for 10 days. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. To, to really answer your question and sum it up, it, it reminded me of something President Obama said in his speech in Selma earlier that year, which is that politics is a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And in a lot of ways, it felt like we were answering those questions that week in a fresh and exciting and hopeful new way. Clementa Pickney found that grace. Cynthia Hurd found that grace. Susie Jackson found that grace. Ethel Lance found that grace. And in the book, you reflect a lot on those few days leading up to the Charleston speech and how you were having to write this this initial draft for um, Obama's speech when he went and spoke in the church. And you write in the book that he's a frighteningly good writer. He was a writer who often tore your work to shreds and he'd come back with almost a totally different document to the speech you initially wrote. And an example of that is during that week uh, when he comes back with a lot of edits and a middle of the night request for changes on the Charleston speech. How do you find the confidence to keep going and not take all of that to heart, just to see it as, no, this is constructive criticism, this is only going to help me get better? The Obama White House was not a place where egos survived, um, especially <laughs> especially when you're speechwriting. When I was a younger speechwriter in the first couple of years, it was, and, I, and as a junior speechwriter, you don't spend a lot of time with the president. It could be crushing to see a speech come back from him with edits all over it. You would feel like you'd done something wrong. But over time, you learn that's actually a good thing. It's helpful. Like I said before, we'd be excited to go see them because it means you did give him something he could work with. For the, the Charleston eulogy, which I was really struggling with all week long, that had the added component of race to it, which was always a challenge for me uh, as, a, as a white man. You know, I say in the book, I, mm. I never felt whiter than when I was writing for the first black president. And that's when the imposter syndrome really kicks in with the added... You know, I haven't lived this life. I, I will never, you can, to be a speechwriter means having a healthy sense of empathy, but I will never truly know what it's like to be a black person in America. To have, you know, someone ask for your ID when you're walking on your own college campus, to be profiled, to be, to have that conversation with your kid that when a police officer approaches you, you know, take your hands out of your pockets. You can guess at these things, but you can never truly understand them. So, and this speech had, he wanted to talk about race. He wanted to talk about the Confederate flag. He wanted to talk about guns. It's all these American political third rails in a eulogy. And I was just really struggling to come up with something worthy of him. I think the draft I gave him was okay, but okay is never quite enough. And so he called me back into the White House, into the residence late on Thursday night. And he had edited the first two pages of the eulogy, but on the, the back two, he did something that he had never done before. He just drew one big line through each page, <laughs> which is, it's like someone punching you in the stomach. Yeah. Not in that, uh, oh, no, you didn't like my work, but in that it wasn't good enough for you and you had to do more work. And he, you know, I spent three days on that draft and he rewrote the back half in three hours, um, longhand with a pen and just I took it to a place that I couldn't reach. Uh, and I apologized to him. It was I think it was the first time I ever apologized to him. And then he did something that he had never done. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, look, brother, we're collaborators. You gave me what I, I needed to do this. 
And if you, you'll see some of your stuff in there, trust me. But also trust me when I say that when you've been thinking about this stuff for 40 years, you'll know what you want to say too. Maybe we now realize the way racial bias can infect us even when we don't realize it. So that we're guarding against not just racial slurs, but we're also guarding against this subtle impulse to call Johnny back for a job interview, but not Jamal. Going back to the basics of writing a speech, when you're staring at a blank document, knowing that you have to turn around and moving an inspiring piece of writing like that you did for the Charleston eulogy or for the Selma speech, where do you start, Cody? I mean, is there a set structure that you follow or do you just sit down, clear your mind and just let your brain take you where you need to go? Yeah, people ask me all the time, how do you how do you overcome the blank page? How do you overcome writer's block? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Um, I would just start. I mean, with a eulogy, there is a set structure to it, um, which which was helpful to know. You know, you begin by addressing the front rows, you know, the, the bereaved, the people who've lost the most. After that, you move to the back rows, the rest of the community, friends, people who who knew and missed the the deceased, and then for a president, only then do you talk to the rest of the world. You know, the battery of lenses at the back of the church, um, posterity. And he, he never, this is going to sound crass, but he never wanted a eulogy to go to waste. He never wanted any live audience to go to waste. It's not, it, for him, it always had to be more than just memorializing the person who is gone. It was instructing the rest of us as to what we're supposed to do now that they're gone. What are our obligations now that they're gone? Tonight, as those of us who are lucky enough to hug our kids a little closer, are thinking about the families who aren't so fortunate, I'd ask the American people to think about how they can get our government to change these laws and to save lives. You know, it was, it was easy to write a speech celebrating marriage equality. It was easy to write a speech mm. um, spiking the American football if Obamacare was going to be upheld. It was easy to write a policy speech. Eulogies and, and more personal ones and, and ceremonial ones like that were always more difficult. But I, I would sit down at that blank page and just start banging away. I tell, I teach speech writing now, and I tell my students, just start writing. See if you can write the entire speech in five minutes. Because any, any good speech is about, it's only 10% writing, it's 90% rewriting. That's how you get to a good yeah. speech. So just get something on the page, even if it's banal and pedestrian, uh, and then you can start working to make it better. Cody, is there one speech that stands out for you during your time in the White House? It's his speech in Selma, Alabama, um, in March 2015. It is a rare honor in this life to follow one of your heroes. And John Lewis is one of my heroes. And it was our purest collaboration, which is why it was one of the best. I have to imagine that when a younger John Lewis woke up that morning 50 years ago and made his way to Brown Chapel, Heroics were not on his mind. I made this a prologue of the book, our process on this. It was the best because uh, it snowed in Washington. So the federal government was closed for a day, mostly okay. because it snowed four to seven inches, but they didn't want, you know, 200,000 employees on the roads coming into downtown Washington. They said, let's telework for the day. I went into work. 
because I knew that President Obama's meetings would be pulled down, and that meant I could grab him for the entire day. Because you know mm. he lived he lived there. He's not he's not going anywhere else. And so we passed five drafts of a speech back and forth, making each other better. And we knew it. It, it was just it was that rare moment where you know you're playing a great game and you just know it. But it ended up being a speech about and, and you know to the listeners who might not know, um, Selma was where in 1965. John, a young man named John Lewis, who ended up becoming a congressman, led a march. They were going to march 50 miles from Selma to the state capital of Montgomery um, to demand the right to vote. We are going to walk nonviolently and peacefully to let the nation and the world know that we are tired now. Which they already had, but Alabama was not letting them exercise. And these are, you know, mostly young, mostly poor black Americans, uh, and they didn't even make it out of town before state police took out nightsticks and tear gas and beat them on the bridge. Um, But they kept going back until they finally did reach the state capitol, and then President Johnson signed into law a voting rights act and a civil rights act. Their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us. So President Obama's going back 50 years to the day to commemorate this. But again, it's not enough just to commemorate it. He wanted to give today's young people their marching orders. He wanted to put Selma in kind of the pantheon of American uh, history. And that's what the young people here today and listening all across the country must take away from this day. You are America, unconstrained by habit and convention. And it ended up becoming a speech that was his purest distillation of what he thinks about this country and what this country's story should really be. It, you know, if anyone's ever looking for a reason to feel better about America, uh, read that speech. And I, 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 I hope that it ends up becoming, I hope that it ends up coming true. Obviously, we're living through difficult political times, but I always hope that would become the first speech of a new America. It's clear, Cody, from the book that your respect and admiration for um, President Barack Obama only grew during the years that you worked together. When you reflect on that time now, uh, what did you learn from working with him? And were there any negatives involved in working in the White House at that time? You know, the only negatives would be personal. You you give up, you miss a lot just by virtue of, of working, you know, long nights, long weekends. You miss weddings. You lose touch with a couple of friends. Um, but in the scheme of things, to get to do that is extraordinary and it's worth it. I also met my wife at the White House, so I can't complain. I met some mm. of my best friends at the White House. We spent our wedding day at the White House. So the, the positives outweigh the negatives. From him, I learned you know, more than just writing, um, a deeper sense of empathy, a kind of a greater understanding of what America is really about and what it can be. And uh, I'll always be grateful to him for that. He made me a better writer through all sorts of struggle. My name is Barack Obama of the Moneygall Obamas. And I've come home to find the apostrophe that we lost somewhere along the way. I also have to ask about your brief reference in the book to Obama's visit to Ireland in 2011 and the Is Fader Lang speech you penned, which he read in front of about 25,000 Irish people on College Green. To Ahis Orem, May and Erin, I am happy to be in Ireland. I'm happy to be with so many 
Those days felt hugely important here in this country, but how significant do you really think it was for Obama himself, visiting a very small nation on the fringes of Western Europe? And also, did that trip stand out for you at all? That was not just one of my favorite days in the White House. That was one of my favorite days ever, you know. Uh, (laughs) I'm seventh generation Irish American, so my ties go way back. Um, They're more diluted than his, you know. Everybody, everybody Everybody liked to joke about people discovering Obama's Irish ancestry about his visit to Moneygall. But it was something profound for him. I, I was with him on the trip um, when he walked through the ancestral home in Moneygall, you know, on the same floorboards that his great-great-great-grandfather walked on. Then the remarkable walkabout began. Hands clasped, babies kissed, autographs given. The president of Michelle Obama seemed to have a moment for almost everybody. The long wait was over and it was worth it. And in America, you know, if, if, you have, if you have black skin, whatever amount it is, people consider you black and treat you that way. People forget that Barack Obama was raised by his white mother and his white grandparents, and that part of his family was just as real. So, you know, again, I, I'm seventh generation. He was, he was, what, fifth? He had closer ties, and he, and he would remind me of that. But for him, that was real, to get to go back and be where an ancestor walked around. It was as real to him as his trips to Kenya. Um, even though he has a bigger active Kenyan family now, mm. but it, it was extraordinary. And that was one of my favorite days. You know, we, we did the, we did the money golf trip and it was raining off and on and off all day. But as soon as we got to college green, the skies just kind of cleared up and he got to give this sort of joyous speech. And we knew it, you know, at the time I- Ireland was going through the same economic struggles we were mm. maybe a little more pointed and his, his goal in that speech was just, let's just buck people's spirits, um, and have a little fun. She definitely did. We all remember it very fondly. The book is very optimistic. It focuses on the positives that emerged from those 10 days in 2015. But then the following year, 2016 happened. Trump beats Clinton. How did it feel for you writing Obama's farewell speech after watching Trump win that election and and step into power? Brutal. It was brutal. Um, You know, the epilogue of the book deals with this and and the, the ensuing years. As exciting as those 10 days were, we were never naive to think that, okay, we've solved all these problems. We're, you know, we're moving on to something better. There's always backlash to progress. And President Obama always said that too. You know, the trajectory of America is for every step forward, sometimes you take two steps back. It felt like we were taking a lot more steps back um, in 2016. He came in, he crashed the senior advisors meeting in the White House the day after the election and said, look, uh, obviously this sucks, but... I don't want to see any long faces because we still have three months of work to do. Mm. And this is when you need hope the most. People always kind of mock the hopey changey stuff, but you don't need hope when everything's going great. You need it when things are not going great. Yeah. Uh, you need it to help the work go along. And so he, we penned this long farewell address about democracy and what was at stake. Our Constitution is a remarkable, beautiful gift. But it's really just a piece of parchment. It has no power on its own. We the people give it power. We the people give it meaning with our participation and with the choices that we make. We went through a few dark years after that. In a lot of ways, we obviously still are. You know, we we had a, a subset of Americans storm the Capitol building last year. You've got Republican politicians in office right now advocating political violence if they don't get their way. It's a very dark time in American politics. And that's one of the reasons I did write this book, because it's still in our hands. 
it, it matters who you put into office, but it matters more that people stay involved and stay engaged and keep pushing. You know, the kind of the triumphs of these 10 days were not Barack Obama's. It was because there's a 50-year movement for LGBTQ rights, the 100-year movement for universal health care that we still haven't fully achieved. We're four centuries into a civil rights movement. And these things take time and struggle and persistence and faith, but they're, they're achievable. They're possible. And I wanted, I wanted to remind people of that. During those four years of the Trump administration, did you ever lose that hope and feel that you or your former colleagues or Obama himself could have done things differently to prevent what emerged in 2016 and the political and social changes and divisions that followed? I don't know what we could have done differently. You know, there, there's always backlash to progress, but but does that mean you just you tr- you strive for less progress? It's important to remember that Donald Trump lost the popular vote. Now he's still president. That's how it works. But there are still more Americans who believe in something better. And you saw it on day one of his administration when you had the largest marches in American history. In cities across the country. Thousands took to the streets to voice their outrage over the election of Donald Trump. You saw it after George Floyd was killed by a police officer. I remember seeing marches in Dublin and, you know, around the country and in in small, even in little rural pockets of America where you wouldn't expect it. Um, You saw people coming out and marching and saying, this is wrong and we're better than this. It's still there. You know, whose president is a reflection on the country at large, but it doesn't reflect everybody in the country. The fact that, that President Trump lost in 2020 is a step in the right direction. He could just as easily win in 2024. But again, it always comes down to always participating, always being an, an active citizen. You know, the things that President Obama always talked about, you just can't give up on him. You work with younger students who are interested in speech writing. How optimistic or pessimistic are you about what lies ahead for them over the next decade? You mentioned Trump might go back into power. Who knows? So what do you think? I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. My students give me a lot of hope. Um, You know, they're not necessarily representative of their entire generation, but they have an impatience that I didn't have to have when I was their age. I I teach them now in the exact same classroom where I took classes 20 years ago. Hmm. And, but, but I grew up in a different time. Growing up in the 80s and 90s, the world and America had plenty of problems. They are more pressing now. Um, climate change is a much realer existential threat to their lives. Some of my students grew up going through active shooter drills in their schools. You know, I, I don't think that's anything you have to go through in Ireland. They go through it here as a rite of passage now. So for them, politics and change are existential and they are way more impatient with the pace of change than we had to be at their age. You know, you think about the terms that the 2000 U.S. presidential election was fought on, and they seem like nothing now. Now they're all important. Every single thing is is almost life or death. So they are very eager to change the status quo. They're very eager to do it quickly, which is exciting. And when I watch any of my students go on and become speechwriters in mayor's offices, state houses, the White House, um, I get a lot of hope out of that. Cody, you decided to call your book Grace. Um, For anyone who reads the book, they will realize that's firstly a reference to Obama's rendition of Saving Grace in Charleston, but it's also your daughter's name. How does she fit into all of this and the journey that you have gone through? They were were birthed at the same time. Um, So one one is not named after the other. She 
you know, when, when Gracie was born in, at, towards the end of 2020, we, my wife and I moved to New York City right before the pandemic, not knowing it was coming. Uh, and it hit New York really badly. And we found out she was pregnant about two weeks before it hit New York really badly. Okay. And so we just kind of hunkered down for a long time uh, just to protect the baby. Because, you know, in, in the beginning, nobody really knew what, what COVID was or how it was transmitted. You know, you press an elevator button, what if you die? Mm-hmm. And then over the summer is when you had all the protests after George Floyd. That's when we really kind of started masking up and emerging a lot. And it was a tumultuous year between the pandemic and the protests and then the contested presidential election for a few days. She was born just days after Joe Biden was declared the victor. And, you know, we looked at each other and thought... I would never dare call a pregnancy easy, uh, but 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 it was complication free. And every night during that year, she would kick at the same time. She would hiccup at the same time in utero, and she just she just gave us a lot of grace that we didn't know that we deserved. So we, you know, my wife and I looked at each other in the hospital. We were like, "There's only one name for this baby." That's beautiful, Cody Keenan. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much. That's all for today, and my thanks to Cody Keenan for joining us. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. 